to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 111 this morning. And uh, where is my sermon? Grant? Making sure we're all on our toes here. We can uh, edit that from the recording, right? All right. Almost a year ago today, we began a 10-week sermon series on a biblical understanding of the church called Refresh. We talked about things like expositional preaching, biblical church leadership, conversion, evangelism, discipleship, membership, discipline, and more. And the purpose of that series was to make sure that all the members of this local church understood the why of it all, right? The why of our ministry. Why do we preach this way and not that way? Why do we sing like this and not like that? Why do we evangelize like this and not like that? Why do we nominate these people to be leaders and not those people to be leaders? For 10 weeks, uh, me and Will tried to use God's Word to show this church what God has to say about the nature of the church. We tried to demonstrate that the health of the church, or the lack thereof, will ultimately depend on whether or not the church operates according to the wisdom of this world or according to the received wisdom of God's Word. Now, when we finished the Refresh series, we talked about it as elders, and the elders largely agreed that the Lord used it. The Lord gave us an increased sense of clarity and unity as a church, and we praise God for that. But one of the elders pointed out what seems like a pretty glaring omission. We never talked about worship. Now, we've just finished walking through the book of Judges, and... I think I can speak for all of us when I say that it was really hard, but really good, right? The Lord really did a a tremendous work in our lives through His Word as we walked through the book of Judges. And you'll remember, of course, that the main theme of Judges was how over and over and over and over and over again, God's people kept doing what was right in their own eyes. And how that led them down this terrible, dark path towards evil, destruction, and discipline. The book of Judges says that when we do what is right in our own eyes, we do that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I think as we survey the landscape of American Christianity, it's pretty obvious. I I shouldn't have to try to convince you. I, I shouldn't have to try to argue this point. It should be fairly obvious to anyone who's paying attention that far too many churches are doing just that when it comes to worship. They're doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. They're not looking to God's Word to see what God has to say about how He should be worshipped. They kind of just do whatever seems appropriate, whatever feels good. God says that this is evil in His sight. I'm not talking, of course, about whether a church uses a pulpit or a lectern to preach their sermon on a Sunday morning. I'm not talking about whether they're totally awesome like us and only use a piano 
or whether they use drums and guitar as well. I'm not even talking about whether they use a KJV or an ESV or an NIV or a NLT. I think we'll stop there. <laughs> and if we, Sixth Avenue Community Church, do not have a clear vision of biblical worship, friends, we can fall into that exact same trap. And let me just, before I launch into this sermon, which is like, this is what God says about how we're supposed to worship, let me just say, I don't think we have it all figured out. But I do think that as a church, we're trying to figure it out by making sure we're always coming back and checking our practices against what God says is good and right and true. And if we do have anything figured out, if we have done anything right, it's only because God has been exceedingly gracious and kind to us. Now, worship is a big topic. If we wanted to, we could spend an entire 10-week series on the subject of biblical worship. And maybe we will do that one day, but in this season of our church's life, after we took a break from the Gospel of John, we need to get back to the Gospel of John. So we're just going to spend one week. Wait, who said amen? <laughs> huh? No, that's, that's fine. We need to spend just one week looking at six foundational principles of biblical worship. This is not exhaustive. Just six foundational principles from Psalm 111. So if you're not there yet, please turn there with me. Psalm 111. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered, the Lord is gracious and merciful. I'm not even going to say this in my sermon, but look at what the text is saying. God's grace is there to help us remember His mighty works. I have to keep reading. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for everything that we could possibly need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Point number one. Worship is a command. The first foundational principle I want us to see from Psalm 11 is that worship is a command. It's right there in verse 1. It begins with this exclamatory remark, 
praise the Lord. This is likely the leader of the congregation that's assembled together, and he's saying, guess what we're going to do now? It's time to do it. We're going to praise the Lord. Curtains up, lights on. The first thing that we find in verse 1 is, after that, is kind of a succinct definition of worship. Worship is what happens when we praise God. Now, I know the words uh, worship and praise kind of exist synonymously in, in most of our minds, so you may be thinking, well, that's not very helpful. helpful. So what, is, what does praise mean? Well, praise is just an expression or approval, excuse me, an, an expression of approval or admiration. Therefore, to worship God is to express our approval of God. It's to demonstrate our admiration of God. Said another way, worship is what happens when we delight in God. It's what what we do when we exalt in God, when we glorify God, when we declare the majesty of God, when we reverence the sovereignty of God, when we cow down to the holiness of God, when we're kind of brought to the end of ourselves in, 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 in tears and lowliness, when we think about the grace and mercy of God. Said yet another way, Biblical worship is the right response, the right response, the appropriate response to who God is and what He has done in His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Now, the second thing we see in verse 1 is that God's people are commanded. They're commanded to pray. Well, we live in a generation where like, we have to have the why, right? My kids are starting to get to the age where because I told you so is no longer sufficient, right? I, go do this. Why? You shouldn't say that. Why? And sometimes we think about that in relation to God. We kind of ask those questions. Why? And that's not bad because God is very kind to tell us why very often in His Word. Why should we praise God? Well, He tells us all over the place. I had a list of like 30 scriptures that I kind of mined from the Bible this week. And I know you guys want me to read all 30. I know. You're willing to stay here till 5 o'clock if, we have to, if it takes that long. But I'm just going to read a few to you, okay? I won't give you all 30 right now. Revelation 4.11. Why do we worship God? Because He is worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. Psalm 18.3. I will call upon the name of the Lord, who is worthy worthy to be praised. Think about that word worthy. There is something inherent in God that says that He deserves this. There is a worth in Him that says that this is what we should expect. Revelation, once again, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Acts 14, 15, from a different angle, Uh, The apostles are saying this, we are bringing you good news that you should turn away from these worthless things to the living God. Talking to a bunch of idolaters, he's saying, you're worshiping things that have no no worth. We're telling you about the God who is worthy, so stop worshiping them and worship the one who has worth within himself. And friends, whenever we praise God... We agree with Deuteronomy 32 when it says this. He is the rock. His work is perfect. 
All his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. God is constantly displaying, broadcasting, putting out into the universe the value and worth of his glory. And when we see that and respond appropriately, worship, we are saying amen to the nature and existence of God. Now, for the Christian, the command to worship God, it should be one of the easiest commands that he has given us. I'll elaborate. The reason why it should be so easy for us to obey is because God has given us eyes to see his worth, right? Remember, before God saved you, you had no eyes to see his worth. When you looked at Jesus Christ, you did not see someone worthy. You saw someone who was worthless. Perhaps you didn't even see anyone at all. You saw a fairy tale, a fabrication. The Apostle Paul describes what we were like before we were given new eyes like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, speaking of the lost, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see. He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This light this glory of God. It's, it's the worth of God being broadcast out into the universe. And Paul says all of humanity is separated into two groups. One group cannot see the light, blind to the light. You put the light right up to their eyes, it's like nothing's happening at all. And then there are those who have been changed by God, who have been given new eyes to see, new ears to hear, who, who have had their hearts of stone replaced with hearts of flesh. And now they see Jesus and they love him. They value him. They see his worth. The scales have fallen from our eyes. Now, that does not mean that our moral vision is always 2020. It doesn't mean that we always consistently, perfectly perceive the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus Christ. But it does mean that if we see it at all, which we do, that worship should just be the automatic response. It's not something that you should have to try to do. It's not something that you should have to conjure up. It's a reflex. It just happens. One, one day I couldn't see the light. The next day I could see the light. And once I could, I had no other choice but to respond appropriately. When I look at uh, old pictures of my, of my kids on Facebook, you guys know how they have like the little memory feature? I swear, these days, that's like the only thing I care about on Facebook, right? And you can look at some, Amber shared one with me the other day of patience, and I was like, oh my goodness, she used to be so sweet. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was amazing, though, young patience. And you know what? As soon as I looked at that picture of her, you know what I did? I smiled. I didn't have to try to smile. I didn't have to work up joy in my heart. I didn't have to sit there and tell you, you are going to think that your daughter is cute. No, it just happened. It was reflexive. As soon as I saw it, 
I responded. That's what Christians do when we have been given the ability to see God. We see Him and we just respond. Now, an implication of this command to praise God is that we may not worship anyone else, any other God, anyone whose name is not Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We may not worship Buddha, nature, or the Mormon version of Jesus. We may not agree with 12-step programs that encourage us to worship the God of our own understanding. We must not worship the Lord plus anything or anyone else. It cannot be Jesus plus politics. It cannot be Jesus plus my family. It cannot be Jesus plus my career. It can't be Jesus plus fashion or Jesus plus health or Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus doctrine. It cannot be that. An implication of this command to praise the Lord is that He alone is worthy and anything else is inappropriate. So now that we understand uh, that we are commanded to praise the Lord, let's take a closer look at how we should do that. Because just because we can praise the Lord doesn't mean we always know how to do that well. So point number two, the second foundational principle of biblical worship is that worship is a matter of the whole heart. Worship is a matter of the whole heart. Now, I'm going to have two subpoints for you on this uh, point. The first subpoint is this. Before we talk about the whole heart, we're just going to talk about the heart. So worship is a matter of the heart. When we say that worship is a matter of the heart, we are not saying that worship is merely an inward experience. It's not just something that we feel on the inside. Friends, you have to understand that God has so designed human beings that whatever may be in us will always come up out of us. You may be able to resist it for a while. You may be able to kind of push it down. You may be able to kind of put on airs. You may be able to live a life of genuine respectability in the community, trying to hide whatever's going on deep down in your heart and soul if it's not good. But it always comes out. Jesus says so himself. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Maybe you're able to kind of slow down the flow from the heart to the mouth for a little while, but whatever's inside always comes outside. Now, when we say that worship is a matter of the heart, what we mean is that true worship is not merely external in nature. Jesus says this in Matthew 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So according to Jesus, it's entirely possible to have an external appearance of worship, but for your heart not to be right, and therefore to have something called counterfeit worship. You can go to church. You can pray. You can sing. You can read the Bible. You can give money. You can feed the poor. You can evangelize. You can do all of these things in such a way that looks like worship to people who cannot see deep down inside of you. All they can see is the external, and man, are they impressed, you know? Wow, look at that guy. Look at that girl, really pious. But Jesus says it's possible to do all of that and to not really be worshiping him at all. 
According to Jesus, worship begins in the heart, and then it overflows out into every other area of our lives. It overflows into our finances. It overflows into our sex lives. It overflows into how we raise our children, etc., etc., etc. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that God reserves His harshest words for those who pretend to worship on the outside, even though they are corrupt on the inside. I could give you 20 examples, and I know you guys would be okay if I sat here and went through all 20 of them with you. I'm just going to give you one. Amos chapter 5. You thought I was going to go Jesus, New Testament, Pharisees, right? No. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 23. I hate your feasts. I despise them. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. According to Jesus, according to God of the Old Testament, doesn't matter, anywhere you go, the testimony is the same. You can have feasts in such a way that are worthless. You can assemble together in such a way that God despises. You can offer up sacrifices in such a way that God looks down upon them in disgust. You can sing songs that make God curl up his nose at the sound of your voice in instruments. <coughs> Friends, if our hearts are not right before God, not only will our worship not be true worship, it'll be counterfeit worship, but it will be counterfeit in such a way as to stir up God's wrath against us. If we are worshiping God with polluted and corrupted hearts, it would be better for our souls on the last day to have never even attempted to wor worship God at all. To summarize this subpoint, let me just say it like this. Modern man is confused about worship in typically one or two ways. Modern man either tends to think that worship is an inside-only experience or he lapses into the pattern of outside-only experience. But God says that neither one of those is acceptable. Worship must be both and, beginning in the heart and then overflowing out into our lives. But you'll notice that the psalmist, as we look at the verse together in verse 1, he says that worship's not just a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the whole heart. Look at verse 1 again. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So it seems like, and by the way, this is subpoint number two, it seems like, according to God, that true worship requires our whole heart. Now, you probably know this already, but let's just do a little review. We know that worship in Scripture, uh, excuse me, we know that the heart in Scripture, it represents the totality of our being, right? That's what it's a symbol of. It, it represents all of us, who we are in our deepest, innermost person. So what the psalmist is saying here is that true worship is all-consuming. 
The psalmist is saying that in true worship, we give our undivided attention to God. He's saying that in true worship, we give God our undivided affections. In true worship, we don't offer most of our lives to God, but then hold back a tiny piece for ourselves. We don't offer a piece of our heart to God. We give God all of us. If you've been a member of this church for mm, longer than a day, (laughs) more than a few Sundays, you've probably heard me say something like this as we begin the service. I'll I'll come up and I'll, uh, you know, probably read scripture and then I'll say something like, if you're here this morning and you're distracted because you had a fight with your wife last night or your kids were being crazy on the way to church this morning or there's something going on with your boss and work is really tough, I want you to take a moment and I want you to put all of that aside and I want you to prepare to enter into the fullness of worship with God. And then I'll say, please turn off your phones, right? That'll help. And then I say, and let's take a moment of silence. Why do I say that? I say that because none of us come into a Sunday morning, myself included, with the, the, the wait, I'm about to try to say something mechanical and I'm going to mess it up. Let me just switch metaphors on my feet. We don't come into worship ready to worship. We don't come into church ready to give God our undivided attention. We don't come in here with our affections totally oriented towards our God. We usually come in divided, exhausted, confused, all different kinds. Maybe that's not you this week, but just give it time. And so pastorally, I want us, before we get started, to just take a moment to recenter, to remember why we're here, and to be prepared to engage with our God with all of our heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, later repeated by Jesus in Matthew 22, God says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. So it doesn't really matter where you are in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God is just always saying the same thing. He wants our love for Him, our devotion to Him, our worship of Him to be total. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, Uh, Sean, are you saying that if I don't worship God with 100% of my heart, 100% of the time, that I'm failing at worship? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what God is saying. God is worthy of 100% of you, 100% of the time. And if we give Him anything less than that, then we are failing in our worship. And it's right here that you might be inclined to give up. Walk away, throw in the towel, take your ball and go home. That guy's a legalist. Can you believe that? I'm going to go somewhere where pastor says something that makes me feel good. I do that sometimes. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm never going to be able to worship God perfectly because of sin, so why even bother? If God's never going to be pleased with me in my imperfect worship, why should I even try? And it's precisely at this point when we feel hopeless and helpless about our worship that we must 
remember the gospel. The gospel doesn't mince words about our worthless worship. It doesn't downplay the seriousness of our failure to worship God like He deserves to be worshipped. No, the gospel points right at our failures. <coughs> the gospel points at our failures and says, Hey, you have sinned. You, like everyone else, have fallen short of the glory of God. You've failed to respond appropriately to the beauty, glory, and goodness of God with your whole heart. You are guilty. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel goes on to say that even though we have all failed to worship God like we should, God has loved us better than we deserved. The gospel says that God came and he gave his son to us. And that if we repent of our worthless worship and trust in him, that God will no longer look at us and see our failures, but look at Jesus and see his perfect obedience. When Jesus walked the earth, he never for a moment failed to reverence God, extol in God, glory in God, delight in God the way that he should have. He did it perfectly, not a nanosecond of failure. And the promise of the gospel is that your worthless worship will not be counted against you if you are in Christ. And the gospel doesn't even stop there. The gospel says that God then gives us his Holy Spirit <clears throat> so that not only will we be forgiven of our failure to worship God like we should, but then God himself will empower us to grow in our ability to offer worthy worship. The Holy Spirit will be active and alive in our hearts. He will help us to hunger for God more, to pursue the things of Christ more consistently. He'll help us to do a thousand other things that make our worship more worthy of God. One of the main ways that we can grow in worthy worship, uh, grow in wholehearted worship, is just by meditating on the reality of the gospel. So, if you're here this morning, and you're struggling to worship God like you should, and you're feeling discouraged, here's what I want you to say to yourself. I have not received a halfway salvation. Therefore, I should not give God my half-hearted worship. Christ did not go halfway to the cross for me, so I will not go halfway in my worship of Him. Jesus did not pay half the price of my redemption by shedding half of His blood, so I will not give Him half of myself. I will give Him every part of me. Jesus did not merely begin the process of salvation by dying on the cross for my sins and then leaving me abandoned to try to fight my way back home. No, Jesus gave me the gift of his Holy Spirit to lead me all the way home, even when I fail and flounder. He is the stamp, the guarantee of my inheritance. And so by God's grace, I will lean into his Holy Spirit and worship him like he deserves to be worshiped. I want you to remind yourself that God has not withheld any good thing from you. Therefore, you should not withhold any good thing from Him. Jesus did not get halfway out of the grave for you. So maybe you could get out of bed and show up to church on Sunday. God has not loved you with a halfway love or a one-third love or a three-quarters love. He's loved you with His whole heart. He gave you His only begotten Son. If that's true... Should you not respond in kind? 
offering up your whole life as a living sacrifice. If you do that well, uh, you're still going to fail. You're still not going to worship God like you're supposed to. So, what do you do when you fail? I want you to remember two things. Number one, I want you to remember that Jesus died for your low-grade worship. You are forgiven. And by His grace, not only are you forgiven, but you're empowered to do better the next time. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you didn't even know that you had a worship problem. But God, by His grace, providentially brought you here right now so that you could hear His Word preached to you. And He's going to apply that Word to your heart by the power of of His Holy Spirit so that you can grow and worship better than you have been. Isn't He amazing? The second thing I want you to remember, and this is good, this is so good. One day, one day you will worship God perfectly. Isn't it good? When you're prone to discouragement regarding your anemic worship, remember that on the last day when we are all at home with Jesus, all of our half-hearted worship will come to an end. It'll be done with. No more struggle. There will be no more quiet singing. There will be no more distracted prayers. There will be no more noisy, fidgety children which we love and we're glad that you're here. There will be no more social media calling you away from the word. There will be no more holding back awkward self-awareness or embarrassment. There will be no hidden sin, no lingering guilt, no secret shame. When all is said and done, those who know Jesus will worship him with all of their hearts and with all of their soul and with all of their strength, and they will spend eternity crying out with every fiber of their being. Not one piece of them will be left out. Not one affection will be divided. They will just spend eternity crying out, blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Come quickly, (laughs) because we are tired of fighting. Point number three, the third foundational principle of biblical worship is that worship is corporate. This point is going to be quick, er, ish. The first half of verse one says that worship is a matter of the heart, but the second half of verse one teaches us That matter of the heart does not mean private matter. Look at verse 1 again. (coughs) I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Who is this congregation that we are going to thank God with and praise God with? Well, look at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. The congregation is those who delight in God, those who love God, those who have been called according to the purpose of God, those who have been saved by God. So here's the idea. 
God's people do not enjoy worshiping alone. That's the idea. I'm not even going to get to the command. It's a command in the Bible that you do not worship alone. I'm telling you that if you're a Christian, you should not enjoy worshiping alone. It just doesn't make sense because God's people love to be around God's people. Those who love God want to be around other people who love God. Those who delight in Jesus don't want to spend all their time around people who are enemies of Jesus. They want to be around other people who love Jesus just as much as they do. So they walk in the room and they say, man, let me tell you what, Jesus, everybody doesn't just go, you don't want to be there. You want to go, hey, let me tell you what Jesus is doing in my life. And everybody goes, yeah, tell me. And you're like, yes, I'm at home. I've heard Christians say things like this before. I enjoy being around lost people more than I enjoy being around Christians. Friends, if that's true, there is something deeply wrong in your spiritual life. And I think maybe one of two things could be happening. The first thing that could be happening is that you've only had terrible experiences with other so-called Christians, right? Maybe in your, the church you grew up in, or maybe in your family. I know Christians who have this testimony. They've only ever been around other nominal Christians, and nominal just means name only. They're not truly regenerate. They're just kind of getting together as a social club, playing the game, speaking the language, doing the dance. You guys know what I mean? And if that's the only kind of Christianity you've ever been around, I understand why you say that. I enjoy being around lost people more than I enjoy being around. Because you don't know what a Christian is. I've been there. I know exactly what you mean. And listen, let's be honest. Nominal Christians are the worst. Not only do they not want you to have any fun, but they're also fake. Right? I would much rather be around a real lost person than a hypocritical Christian. The second reason why you might feel like that is that... Let me say it like this. The, the, the second reason why you maybe enjoy being around lost people more than Christians um, is because you yourself are lost. It, it could just be that you're not a Christian. It, it could be that you're unregenerate, that you're self-deceived. You could be the nominal Christian that we're talking about right now. There are four or five different ways I thought about saying this, but I think just plain and direct is probably the best. So hear me well as I say this. If you do not love God's people, you are not a Christian. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And yet I recognize that there may be some here among us who feel like they really are trying to love their fellow Christians. They really are trying to love the congregation, but they have the theology. Yes, Sean, I've heard that verse before, but man, my heart is struggling to catch up to my mind. My affections are not keeping up with my theology. I know I'm supposed to love the church, but man, I'm struggling. What, what do you have for me? Well, I have four things for you to consider if this is you. Number one, 
it's hard to love people you don't know. And it's hard to get to know people that you're not around. So rather than pulling away as you struggle to have affection for the church, I want to encourage you to press in. When I first got to this church, (laughs) it was a weird time. Very few people, a very small segment of them liked me. Most of them tolerated me, and some of them hated me. It was wild times back then. You should have been there. Uh, And I I was not particularly fond of them either. You know? But guess what? I was here every Wednesday. I was here every Sunday. Teaching Sunday school. Going to their homes. Doing their funerals. Preaching their weddings. Having dinner with them. Awkward dinner. Awkward lunch. And you know what? It did not take long at all for my heart to be stirred for this church and for my affections to grow. And pretty soon I felt like a shepherd. I I love these sheep so much. I can't believe how much I love these people. And it was because I pressed in rather than pulling away. So I want to encourage you to do that. Be here on Sunday. And don't be here in such a way that you can't actually get to know anybody. You know what I'm talking about, coming late, leaving early. You know, never coming to Sunday school. Never coming to Wednesday nights, not joining a small group. You should know that in the future, if you come to me and you say, Sean, I'm just really having a hard time connecting with people. And like, I just tend to not really see you around. You're the guy who comes in late, leaves early. You don't come to Bible study. You don't show up. You don't take people out to lunch. I'm just going to say, oh, well, you should probably do those things I've been telling you to do and see if that helps first. The second thing I have for you, and this one is so simple, it has to be profound. Pray. Just pray. Ask God to help you with your affections. The heart's a weird thing. It's deceitful, wicked above all things. That's what the Bible says. Even as Christians, our heart plays tricks on us. And so we need God, who's sovereign over our hearts, to come in and to help us. And so if you're struggling, just go to God and say, God, I'm struggling. He's not going to be mad at you. He's not going to wag his finger at you. He's going to say, thanks for coming. I'm here to help. The third thing is, find a way to serve your fellow church members. Sometimes we just need to act first and then trust that our affections will catch up. Right? So just find somewhere to serve the church. Find someone to serve in the life of the church. And then four, the fourth practical point is, preach the gospel to yourself. Sometimes we get to know God's people and we don't really enjoy them because sin is alive and well. Listen, I assume that some people in this church may be struggling because sin has affected them in this church. I don't assume that this is a sterile space, you know, like a well-kept OR where sin cannot come in. The germ of sin has not invaded our presence. That's real. But you have to remember that God loved us even when we were sinners, He loved us when we were grotesque and ugly in our sin. He didn't pull away from us like we were spiritual lepers, even though we were spiritual lepers. He came closer to us. Remind yourself of this gospel truth and let that empower you to move in closer to your brothers and sisters. Don't give up. The very first thing that God said after he created Adam was this. It is not good for man to be alone. Think about when God said that. He said that just Adam and God alone in the garden 
walking in perfect communion. Sin hadn't entered the picture. There was no disruption, nothing bad. And yet God told Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. If that's true of Adam and God in the garden, then it's even more true of you. It is not good for you to worship God alone. The fourth foundational principle of biblical worship is that worship is doctrinal. Look at verses 2 and 3. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. Friends, when I say that worship is doctrinal, I simply mean that our worship must be grounded in truth. Objective truth, biblical truth, gospel truth. Worship is ultimately a responsive act. Worship is what happens when God's people perceive and then rightly respond to what God has done and who He is. So if we don't know who God is, because we haven't studied his revelation of himself, and if we don't know what God has done because we don't study his mighty deeds, which he has revealed to us in Scripture, then we're not going to be able to worship him like we should. We're not going to be able to respond appropriately. Friends, study is the fuel of worship. I'm not saying it's the only thing. And the Lord knows that in our congregation, our greatest danger is probably to think that the more we study, the more we, we have a relationship with God, and that is not true. But it is also true that you cannot worship God without fueling yourself for worship by studying Him and His works in His Word. Now, the word study here, it means to carefully consider. So, let's ask ourselves, do we carefully consider God and His works? Do you consider God as carefully as you consider your next social media post? Take the picture like this, not like that. You know, put this filter, crop it that way, put it on these platforms. The, the, whatever I say underneath it, it has to be exactly right. Go back and check how many people have liked it, who has responded to it. Do we consider God as carefully as we consider the stock market? Do we consider God as carefully as we consider the lines on our aging face? Do we consider God as carefully as we consider our diet? Do we consider God as carefully as we consider the latest celebrity gossip? Do you carefully consider the person and work of Jesus Christ? When you read the Bible, how do you read it? I got five minutes before my next meeting. Do you skim it? Or do you carefully consider it? Do you dig in? When you pray, how do you pray? Do you rush? Or do you linger? Carefully considering God's word and then praying it back to him. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, are you engaged or are you distracted? Are you here this morning just to kind of put the check in your box? Okay, I did that. I did my Christian duty. I went to church. 
Or are you here to carefully consider the God who made you and who loves you and who saved you? Friends, you don't have to be an academic to study God. Nowhere in this text does it say that he's studied by those who have more brain power or those who have a particular degree or those who have a particular IQ. No, he says that those who delight in God study him. So that might mean that if you don't study God, maybe you don't delight in God the way that you should. I remember the days of my, uh, excuse me, the early days of my relationship with Amber when we were in the process of falling in love, right? I was expecting kind of like, no. So anyway, I remember the days when we were in the process of falling in love. Mm, And we still are, aren't we, babe? We would stay up all night talking, all night. Why? Well, because we were studying one another. We were carefully considering each other. Tell me about your parents. Tell me where you're from. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I want to hear more about how you did this or that. I want to know you. I want to know all of you. We do the same thing with good friends, do we not? We study them. We consider them carefully. We ask them a question. They go, dude, that's kind of a long story. And you're like, oh, I've got time. Hit me with the details. But here's the thing, after you've been married for a long time, 15 years like Amber and I, sometimes it feels like there's not a lot left to study. I know Amber. Amber knows me. Now, every now and then, Amber will find out something new about me, or she'll hear a story I've never told before, and she'll say, how did I not know that? How have I never heard that story before? Even over the course of our marriage, I may change as a person, and she may begin to learn something new about me as I change in the process. But there's no escaping it. The longer you've been in a relationship with a friend or a spouse, the less there is to study. Now, uh, young couples are very afraid of that. You know, oh, we're losing the fire. We're losing the magic. What happened to the fireworks? No, no, no. You're just moving out of one really good phase in your relationship to another really good phase in your relationship. But having said that, none of this is true of God. God is infinite, and His mighty works are full of splendor and majesty. You could read this book all day, every day, for the rest of your life, and you wouldn't even begin to break down past the surface of who God is and what He has done in Christ to save you. Even when we get to heaven I know a lot of us think when we get to heaven, it's going to be like zap, you know, like microwave, everything that I ever want to know about God will be right there. But listen, God is infinite. We are not. We will never be infinite even when we get to heaven, which means that we will spend the rest of eternity plumbing the infinite depths of God. Angels long to look on the things that we have experienced, and we are going to be able to go to God and ask Him questions about those things for all of eternity, and we are going to delight In doing so, every new thing that we see about salvation will be just that much sweeter. Every nook and cranny that we explore of the person of God will reveal something more glorious than before. Listen, God is infinite and eternal, which means that those who delight in studying God 
will find him infinitely delightful. Point number five. The fifth foundational principle of worship is remembering. <coughs> Look at verse four. The Lord, oh, no, wrong verse. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Although the past cannot be fully re-experienced in the present, remembering is one way that we bring the past to bear on the present. And sometimes that's not good. You think about a veteran who has a nightmare about his time in combat, or a woman who has a flashback about her abuser, which leads her into an anxiety attack, or a certain food that you go to eat reminds you of this time that you had food poisoning at the Cuban restaurant in Atlanta, and then you get really nauseous, right? Life in a fallen world means that sometimes memory is a curse and remembering is a bit of a trial. Having said that, Scripture tells us that memory is also one of the main instruments in our worship tool belt, right? Remembering helps us to focus on God and what He's done for us. One author has given us nine different things that memory does for us to help us worship God rightly. He says it does things like prompt thankfulness. It raises hope. It prompts repentance. Just listen to Matthew 26. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, and he went out and wept bitterly. Memory led Peter to repentance. Memory fosters humility. Memory warns of unbelief and disobedience to keep us on the right track. Luke 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Memory encourages belief in obedience. Listen to Mark 14, 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Memory prompts mercy. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. Why? Because you shall remember that you yourself were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord God has redeemed you from there. Now let's take that and make it applicable. Don't be un unjust and unrighteous because you used to be a victim of that, so don't do it. Don't be impatient with people when they're not being as sanctified as quickly as you think that they should be sanctified in light of how God, patient God has been with you. Don't demand that someone has all the answers right now because you yourself just got one answer by God's grace like last week. Remembrance forms individual and community identity. Remembering helps us confirm our calling and election. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So Peter says, listen, you guys know this, but I got to remind you again. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So Peter says, guys, I know I'm about to die, and I know I've already taught you all these things, but I feel like before I go, I need to remind you one more time. 
I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. The ability to remember is a very important part of Christian worship. Indispensable. Now think about this local church. This local church has Christians everywhere on the maturity spectrum. Some of us are babes in the faith and need to be taught many things. Others of us have been following Jesus for a very long time and need to be taught many things. But for those of us who have been following Jesus for a a long time, just by a quick raise of hands, uh, raise your hand if you've been following Jesus for less than a year. One, two, three, four. Yes. Praise God for your salvation. Raise your hand if you've been following the Lord for less than five years. Hands high. You can look around. Okay, I'm like eight people. Raise your hand if you've been following the Lord for less than ten years. Raise your hand if you've been following the Lord for less than 15 years. Raise your hand if you've been following the Lord for less than 20 years. 30? 40? I don't want to give anyone's age away. Raise your hand if you think you've been following the Lord for 50 years. That's a lot of grace. Praise God. That's a lot of grace. So for those of you who are in the, I don't know, let's say 10 to 50 range. That's a big range. Wouldn't you say that what you most often need is not to learn something new, but to just be reminded of something that you already know? Samuel Johnson once said this, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. I found that to be true, which is why when I'm counseling people, I'll always say something like this. I'll say, hey, I know you already know this, but let me say it again, and let me say it out loud. I don't assume that you remember. You should not assume that I remember. You should always be quick to quote Scripture for me. I should never respond, well, I'm the pastor. I study the Bible. I know this. No, you should assume that I don't remember. All of us, we should all view each other like gospel amnesiacs. Like people who have gotten into a car accident and the only part of our brains that don't work is the part that helps us to remember gospel truths. And so we just be constantly going to one another and just saying, hey, I know you probably already know this, but uh, you probably heard this before, but I know we talked about this last week, but, and just saying, reminding each other about these truths over and over again. And in order for that to work, in order for us to have a community where we can do that, you have to have a humble and teachable spirit. If a brother or sister in Christ shares some gospel truth with you and your first response is, well, yeah, I know. No. And by the way, you don't know the way you think you know. You probably need to know better. And maybe the way that they're going to say it in this context, according to your circumstance, is going to be the thing that causes the bottom to drop out so that you go from knowing it in your head to actually knowing it in your heart. Not in my notes. God knows, friends, that we are prone to forget who He is and what He has done for us, which means that He has been kind to us to set up our lives in such a way to always help us remember. Every time we eat food, we're reminded that we are in desperate need of something outside of ourselves in order to live. 
And that points to the gospel. Every time we gather on Sunday, we are reminded that we cannot do this alone. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of what He did for us on the cross. Do you see, have you thought about that? God has built the church in such a way so that we have a recurring meal together where the only purpose of that meal is for us to remember. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's quoting Jesus. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, that could be, what, once a week in your church, it could be once every three months in your church, however often you do it, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup and remember the cross, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Well, proclaim to who? Christians typically don't celebrate the Lord's Supper with unbelievers present. Who are we proclaiming it to? We're proclaiming it to one another. We are each other's designated reminders. Uh, We've hired Luke Hill to be my pastoral assistant. That's like half his job. He's my designated reminder. But when it comes to membership and discipleship in the church, that is all of our jobs for all of us. In Psalm 111, verse 9, we're told that God has sent redemption to his people. And indeed, he has. And friends, the most important thing for our worship, for it to remain biblical, is for us to make sure that we remember this redemption. This is the core of our identity. So when we come together as a church, we don't come together around anything else other than that redemption. When we read scriptures, we read about our great salvation. When we sing songs, we sing songs about redemption. When we pray prayers, we pray prayers, sometimes too long, that extol the nature of God and His covenant-keeping love. When we preach sermons, never too long, they are always rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper, we picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But of course, remembering doesn't just apply to our life in the church. Friends, as a Christian, your whole life is worship, which means that your whole life has to, in some sense, be dedicated to remembering. So take the parents in the room. We strive to teach our children to live for the glory of God, (coughs) right? Isn't that what we do? And then we spend every second of every day until they, oh no, leave our house. We spend every second of every day reminding them of how to do that. When we're tempted to sin, again, we remind ourselves of the fact that we don't have to because we've been buried with Christ. We're dead to sin, and we've been resurrected with Christ, which means that we're victorious over sin. When we lack joy in our jobs, we remind ourselves of God's perfect providence and provision, and then we tell ourselves that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, we work as under the Lord. When we're prone to despair in our salvation, we remember that Christ's death on the cross is the basis of our confidence and hope. Uh, The first part of learning any new language is filling up your vocabulary bank, right? I've tried to learn two languages other than English. Uh, Greek and Spanish did better with Spanish than Greek. But both times I learned the new language, at first you could find me with uh, the flashcards, 
right? A stack full of them everywhere I went. I, I had to remember, and the only way that I could remember was by being intentional about looking at the content, saying it out loud, hearing it, practicing it over and over and over and over again. Friends, that is the kind of intentionality we need to make sure that we do not forget the gospel. That is the kind of intentionality we need in our remembrance. Talk about the gospel all the time. Bring it up at lunch after church. Like today, you're at Five Guys. You're talking about what, what sports are going on right now? Alabama football or something like that? What, a soccer? No? Yes? But nobody here would probably be talking about that. But it doesn't matter. Cut that conversation off right in the middle if you have to. I'll do it. None of that really matters, guys. What do you think about the sermon? Was somebody encouraged, challenged, exhorted, rebuked? Set reminders on your phone so you don't get too busy to read and pray. Put scripture up all over your home, in your cars, wear clothes that have scriptures all the way. Listen to music that preaches the gospel to you. Make it a point to spend time with people who love Jesus and want to talk to you about him. And for goodness sake, get your butt here on Sunday morning. Point number six. Worship will never end. I was recently speaking with someone over lunch, and they said that they had grown up in Huntsville their whole lives, and they said that they were part of the first graduating class of Bob Jones High School, which at, at first was Bob Jones Middle School. <coughs> Anyways, I asked him, because I've always wondered, is that the same Bob Jones from Bob Jones University? You know, skirts down to here, that one. And uh, he said, no, no, actually, this guy was, um, he was in the House of Representatives in the state of Alabama, and he just wanted, uh, he just wanted his name on a building. So he paid for the school to be built and named after him. Now, our first uh, kind of gut reaction to that is we go, ugh, so vainglorious, you know, who, who is this guy? But the truth of the matter is that we all want to be remembered, right? To feel meaningful is to desire immortality, and we all feel meaningful. We want our names to travel down through the annals of history. We want our lives to matter beyond our last heartbeat. We want people to remember us, to talk about us, but in a world with 7 billion people, all doing amazing things, all happening at the speed of light, the odds of anyone remembering your name very long after you die are pretty slim. I'd be willing to bet that no one in this room can name all 47 United States presidents. Who thinks they got it? You won't do it right now, but you think, I, Katie Claire, I knew you were going to be the one. But don't, don't answer. I believe you. Other than Katie Claire, though, nobody else probably knows that. These are, you. okay, all right, and your brother. We're going to test this after church. And then I'll have to look up the 47 presidents so I can actually make sure they're right. But the thing is, is the vast majority of us can't remember even half of them. These are United States presidents. and We can't remember their names. They've accomplished so much, and yet we don't know them. So here's the deal. If you want your life to matter beyond the seven to ten decades that you get on this planet, maybe, maybe, if you want your life to matter, 
eternally. Dedicate your life to worship. Look at verse 10, right here at the very end of the psalm. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. That'll preach. That's a whole sermon in itself. And then the psalm ends like this. His praise endures forever. So you know that, that really good thing that you did at your job? You know the project that you were working on for months on end, the thing that you lost sleep for, you sacrificed time with your kids about, the one that your boss praised you for, the one that got you a promotion? Nobody's probably going to remember that within a year. Maybe two. Ten at the most if you're like a real rock star. Oh, you remember that money that you raised for that charitable cause, you know? You were putting leaflets on doors, phone calls, emails, cashing in favors. Yeah, that money was probably spent before you got your last thank you card. And that thank you card may be the last time anyone remembers. I mean, maybe somebody put your name on a brick and put the brick in the building or something like that, but nobody's going to look at that brick and go, oh, Susie Jenkins, wow. We're all raising our children to be upright citizens, and that's great. It's amazing. It's what we should do as Christians. But let me ask you this. Do you know the name of your great-great-grandmother? Anybody? Name of their great-great-grandmother? Of course, Katie Claire. Anybody else? Two? Not much. Not many. I don't believe you. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that even if you're a fantastic parent, your great-great, maybe great-great-great grandkids probably won't remember you. The only way that your life will matter forever is to give it to something eternal. And God's Word tells us that true worship, not external worship, not worthless worship, but true worship will reverberate throughout eternity. Jude 1.25 To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray. God, you have been with us in a very special way this morning, and we exalt in you. We have studied you and your goodness. We have feasted on Christ, and God, we feel well fed. Thank you, for keeping your promise to love us, to be faithful to us, even when we have been faithless to you. Thank you for teaching us, by your grace and your word, how we should respond to you in right worship. Give us more grace for tomorrow and the day after, all the way until you call us home. In your son's name we pray. Amen.